Well, good morning, everybody. If you uh, are with us live online, welcome to you. Uh, there's a chat feature that if you're watching on the right kind of device, you can engage with the host, and that host would be delighted to pray with you, chat with you, just say hello. Uh, same thing happens here. We do this face-to-face here, so if you'd like to chat a little bit afterwards, some of our pastoral team will be down in this area. There's always folks in the atrium that would be uh, there to uh, support you and encourage you. Look for the name tags and, and just have a good conversation with somebody today. Uh, while you're here. Now, before I get into this week's uh, message, I want to just also mention something again here that I talked about a little bit in the Friday newsletter, and that's membership. I just want to make this little plug in this invitation for any of you who've been thinking about membership, don't know what membership is and why we have it. We have this little experience where we just kind of walk through the who, what, why, where, what's the whole idea around membership. We're going to do that next weekend after this hour, so about 11.30 uh, next Sunday morning. You can jump into there. It would be great if you would register so we know how many to expect. You can do that on our website. And there's also an online edition of this uh, the following week as well. So just note those couple of opportunities, and if you'd like to consider uh, participating with us in that way, uh, that's the best path to make that happen. So how many of you have met Pastor Gabe? A lot of you know Pastor Gabe. Yeah, most of you around here. Gabe's our hospitality pastor. You'll usually find, well, he's right back there, uh, leaning up against the wall. So Gabe uh, is responsible for all of our hospitality initiatives around here. And he and I partner together on some of our uh, experiences. One of them is Pizza with a Pastor. He and I usually co-host that. Gabe is fond of asking sort of an icebreaker question in these environments. And one of his go-to questions is, do you think there's more doors or wheels in the world? So think about the entire planet. Are there more doors or are there more wheels? I started out as a wheel guy. I thought about all the vehicles and all the gear. All the, there's got to be just more wheels. But over time, I've kind of converted and become more of a door person. Um, <laughs> clapping for that? For real? Um, why don't you turn, take about 30, 40 seconds, turn to somebody near you, maybe the person you met earlier, and just say, I'm a wheel person, I'm a door person. Which one do you think there's more of? Go ahead, take about 30, 40 seconds, have that. Let's, uh, let's see where we are now uh, on this one. How many of you said, hey, I think wheels? How many of you are wheel people? Oh, this is interesting. How many door? So the, oh, wow, the doors have it. Did I talk you into that? <laughs> there's no way to know. If you Google that, there's all kinds of online debates on this very question. I'm going to talk about doors today. Specifically, I want to talk about gates. In the translation I more typically use, the text we're going to look at, there's, there's doors or gates are all over this message. 
fact, uh, earlier this week, I came into this room to see the set, the SEA musical here, because I was kind of hoping there would be something I could use to sort of simulate a, a door or a gate or something. So I came in here, and this was not here at the time. Part of it was back here, and I said to Stacy, one of the directors, I said, is there anything like I could use for a gate? And she said, I got a gate for you. And she showed me this gate. So uh, we're going to leave this kind of prominent here as a, as a reinforcement of some of what we're going to talk about here. We're going to talk about gates in this message. Let me just recap where we've been in this I Am series. Um, what we started out with is looking at the origins of that phrase, I am. Where does that title come from? And we really think it traces back to, uh, to the story of Moses and the burning bush. So when God reveals himself to Moses, calls out to Moses from the burning bush, he says, I am who I am. I am. I'm the great uh, I am. It's a very powerful story from Exodus chapter 3. And so then we see this idea beginning to kind of move through the pages of Scripture. You see it several times, including Isaiah. Other uh, writers refer to God as the I am. God is more than just the bringer of existence. He is existence. That's where we begin in week one, and then we started moving our way into John's gospel and these various statements that Jesus makes about himself. Seven different times Jesus refers to himself in these I am statements. The first one we looked at was Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I don't just bring nourishment and sustenance, I am nourishment and sustenance. And then last weekend, uh, Jeremy Cook took a turn and he walked us through the implications of Jesus' words in John chapter 9 where he says, I am the light of the world. I don't just point to the light. I am enlightenment. So this morning, I'm going to take you to the next one, and this is going to come from John chapter 10. And again, we'll just let this be a little visual reminder of something Jesus is going to say. So before I get to the actual text, let me give you context. Let me show you the lead up to this a little bit because, as always, context matters. Context brings Scripture to life. So the statement, I am the light of the world, is in John chapter 9. That's where we were last week, and that's what Jeremy taught us from. I am the light of the world, says Jesus. And the rest, that, that actually happens at the beginning of chapter 9 of John's gospel. He makes that statement. And then the rest of the chapter really is evidence of exactly what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is bringing light where there's darkness. And literally, he heals a man who's blind. So he brings light to a man who had spent his whole life in the dark. And so you'd think it's this great, powerful story and this reason to celebrate, but it's not all good in the hood because Jesus has healed this man on a Sabbath day. And that's considered a violation of Sabbath law. It's technically work. And so when the morality police find out what Jesus has done, that he's helped this blind man have his sight restored or given to him for the first time, instead of rejoicing with him, instead of celebrating this incredible thing, they say to the man, who did this? Who did this to you? They get very accusatory. Now, the guy really doesn't know who Jesus is at this point, at least not yet, but when the Pharisees, uh, that's who's making the accusations, uh, they confront the man and they say, well, you know, clearly this man must not be from God because if he was, he would know better than to do something like this on the Sabbath. And so what you have at the end of John chapter 9 uh, is you have this formerly blind man testifying about Jesus' actions, singing his praises, 
and he doesn't care that it's the Sabbath. He's just glad to have his sight back. But because he's okay with this healing on the Sabbath, the leaders are so incensed that they throw him out of the community. Quite literally. I mean, maybe not necessarily, you know, by the belt and throw him, but they kick him out of the synagogue, which is devastating. If you're a local Jewish follower of Yahweh, the synagogue is everything. The synagogue is the center of community life. It's where everybody goes to be together and to also worship together, sort of like we're doing here. And he's tossed out. This rejection riles Jesus up. He's not there when they kick the guy up, but he hears about it. And I want you to see his reaction. So here we go. This is the end of John chapter 9. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Then Jesus turns away from the healed man who now worships him as Lord, and he trains his eyes on the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the morality police, the rule keepers. The Pharisees are his audience as John chapter 10 begins. Now we're into 10. Very truly, I tell you. And by the way, just want to make this point one more time here. I've done this before, but whenever you see uh, Jesus or somebody saying, truly, I tell you, or verily, verily, you see in some translations, this is Jesus' way of saying, don't miss this. This is a really important point. So very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Now, there's a, a line here about uh, gatekeepers in the text here. Uh, I, I don't know who the gatekeeper is in this text. Um, there's references to maybe this being John the Baptist. Some people uh, think it's an under-shepherd or a junior shepherd. I'm not 100% sure. But the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he's brought all, all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. I don't know if you have any experience with sheep or sheep farming or how these ancient practices, you know, happened in the ancient Middle East. Um, if you know something about all of that, if you've experienced sheep, maybe this uh, makes a little bit more sense to you. I've got virtually no experience with sheep. I've never really been on a farm. So uh, I rely on the historians and the farmers who write about this stuff, who describe how sheep uh, work and how sheep farming happened in the ancient world. And, and based on all of that data that I was able to mine, I've got a few observations. So the first one has to do with this idea of a sheep pen. You see that phrase in, in verse 1, the sheep pen. Most villages in these ancient communities would have an enclosure for sheep. So what you want to picture probably are stone walls. I don't know, maybe about that high or something like that. Uh, rock walls, you know, made maybe a big rectangle or something like that with a single narrow opening. And the way it would work is typically the 
community would keep their sheep all together in one big enclosure. During the day, the sheep would be let out to graze, but at night they would all be kind of brought back into the sheep pen, all of these sheep from different households mixed together. And at night, the gate would be monitored by a shepherd or a shepherd's assistant, the gatekeeper, whomever. I don't know, maybe they take turns. But this person might quite literally become like the door because they would lie across or sit across the entrance of this opening. Nothing goes in or out without going over or through the keeper of the pen. Now, if you're a a person with sheep inside, you have access. You're free to come and go. You can go into the pen because you've got sheep in there. The only reason to go into the pen by another means would be to do something uh, nefarious, like to do something bad, to steal an animal. So this is what Jesus is referencing, this community sheep pen, a bunch of sheep, some shepherds kicking around with one of these shepherds going through the gate and calling their sheep by name from the rest of the animals. There's a whole little angle you could kind of get into here just by thinking about the idea that the sheep actually have names. They're named. Like, that's a pretty powerful thing to think about uh, right there. A lot of animals know their names. We used to have a dog. His name was Tucker. Uh, Sorry, babe, to bring that up. Anyway, he's no longer with us, but Tucker knew his name, and so other, you could call him, and he would react to his name. Sheep are not very bright. Our dog wasn't very bright, but sheep are not very, sorry, uh, sheep are not very bright either, especially they're not very bright. And so I don't know that they're necessarily reacting to their names, but they're for sure reacting to the voice of their shepherd. There's all kinds of YouTube videos where you can go and see examples of how sheep respond only to the voice of the one that takes care of them. Sheep don't recognize the voice of a stranger. Now, with a text like this one, this this is an important chapter, I think, for John, the gospel writer. He's got an agenda with the way he writes this. He is definitely trying to communicate something powerful and eternal. This is something that's supposed to take root in our hearts and move us to response. So let's examine this on a little bit deeper level. First of all, what Jesus is getting at, what I think John most wants us to think about is what happens in verse 11 of chapter 10. That's where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The text that we read earlier, Jesus is describing some reality for the Pharisees. He's giving them an illustration. He's giving us an illustration. He's giving us a parable, if you will, a a metaphor. And this all leads to the place where he says, I am the shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And we're going to talk about that more next weekend. So I'm going to save some of the shepherd stuff for next week. Next week's message will overlap a little bit with this one. But let's get back into this one and look at some of the other sort of details here. Let's talk a bit more about the pen. If the shepherd in the story is a type of Christ, then what do we do with the imagery of the pen? Well, this part's a little bit more subtle, and this is certainly up for some debate, but the pen probably represents something as well. And I did not see this initially, and so I'll be surprised if this is something you're thinking about, but the pen probably represents Israel. Now, a lot of you, again, probably didn't see that coming. 
Uh, the pen, we think, is probably Israel, more precisely Judaism. And the best evidence I can give you for that is something Jesus says a little bit later in verse 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. So just stick with me for a second. This is the one little kind of technical part of this chapter. In verse 1, Jesus uses this community sheep enclosure as an illustration of this gatekeeper and shepherds all around the entrance. And then ultimately, it leads to him saying, hey, the best one of the, the real shepherd is me. Who's represented by the other sheep in the pen? Well, one way to look at this is we are. If you're a Gentile, which is probably, I'm guessing, a lot of you, most of you, most of us, if you've embraced faith in Jesus Christ, you're part of the group that Jesus is likely referencing in verse 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, when I walk into the pen... I will call by name all of the sheep and they will respond to my voice and I will unify them together and they will become like one big flock. The idea that Jesus is referring to Judaism is uh, supported by other clues in John's gospel as well. I want to show you something from John chapter 1. That's uh, a famous chapter. That's the one that begins with uh, there was light and, and Jesus came as the light. Uh, it's kind of a prologue to the gospel. This is also in John chapter 1. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. His own here is probably almost certainly a reference to Israel or the Jews. Jesus is Jewish, and he does most of his work and his ministry and spends time with almost exclusively Jewish people, and they are the ones, some of which, who do not receive him. But to all who will receive him, to all who believe in his name, he will welcome them into his ultimate sheep pen. See, Jesus knows throughout his time on this planet that some people are not going to embrace him. They're not going to follow him. Some are going to reject him, but that's not going to stop him from calling them. His new family will be for anybody. Jews, Gentiles, anybody can be part of his new community. Now let's talk about the thieves a little bit. Who are the thieves and the robbers? Well, based on how this section starts, he's definitely talking about the Pharisees. Of this, I don't think there's that much debate. They're the ones who will kind of climb over the wall, if, as it were. These are the people he's speaking to. They don't have sheep in the pen. They have no business being in the pen. So they're the ones that come over the wall to steal and kill. And further evidence on this comes again from the end of chapter 9. Remember, the, the Pharisees are, are confronting this guy that they've known for years. They've watched him grow up in their community as somebody without sight. And all of a sudden, for the first time in his life, he can see. But rather than celebrating his healing and his good fortune, his transformation, they chuck him out of the synagogue with being, for being okay with this healing on the Sabbath. They rob him, if you will. They steal his joy. So to summarize, we've just kind of looked at the first five verses of John chapter 10. 
We have a community sheet pen, and we have Jesus entering the pen, which is within his rights to do because he's got sheep in there, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. That's the first five verses. Now let me show you verse six. Jesus used this figure of speech, this illustration, this story, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Now, why the Pharisees don't get this, again, we'll talk about this a bit more next weekend, going to be in this same section again, uh, but for this message today, let me just camp for a few more minutes on um, the verses 7 to 10. And this is where Jesus offers a multifaceted and nuanced explanation of what he means when he refers to himself as the gate. This is verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, don't miss this, he says, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. And again, he says, I am am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So two times, once in verse 7, once in verse 9, Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the door. And so to the confused Pharisees who don't understand Jesus kind of doubles down on this. You know, it just, we were just told they're not getting it. And so then he adds another illustration. They don't get the first illustration. Now he gives them a second one. I don't really think Jesus clears up the confusion, at least not yet, because he starts out with this, this commentary, this illustration about sheep and shepherds, clearly referring to himself as the shepherd, but now he calls himself the gate. So I don't blame anybody for being confused. Okay, Jesus, which is it? Are you sheep? Are, are you gate? Are you shepherd? Like, you know, pick a pick a metaphor and stick with it. I can sort of imagine them saying. And so is he, you know, shepherd or is he gate? The answer is yes. <laughs> it's both, right? He's both. Again, more on the shepherd part next weekend. So let's just talk about this gate business for a few minutes. What kind of clues do we see in the text about the kind of gate that Jesus is? Well, one of my sources had a pretty clever explanation. It's a little bit cute, but I'm going to use it. He suggests that there's four descriptions of Jesus' nature and character that we can sort of take from this metaphor of gate. Jesus is a gate of recess. Jesus is a gate of access. Jesus is a gate of blessing. And Jesus is the gate of protection. All of this flows out of those verses we just read. So couple of comments about each of these, and then we'll be done. So here's why I think it's good to think of Jesus as the gate of recess. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the word recessional or recess, the way we use it sometimes. I was in a meeting earlier this week with a couple. Uh, we were planning their wedding. I'm officiating at their wedding in June, and so we were going through their wedding ceremony, planning all the details out, and I was asking them questions about this and that. And without really thinking about it, uh, I said just to them, you know, do you have a song picked out for the recessional? And they looked at me like I was nuts um, because they didn't really know that word. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean, that's kind of a, a, a formal word. Recess or recessional means go out to sort of leave the space. And so that's kind of how I use that word. 
at, at some weddings, couples will recess to a joyous song. It's a, it's a happy moment. It literally is sort of their first moments as a married couple that, that happens right there. They recess back. Uh, some couples recess and then say to their guests, we'll see you in three hours because we're going to go take pictures. More sensitive couples say, we're going to recess right to the reception right now because it's time uh, to party. That's what a recess is. Uh, see where this is going, maybe? I hope you're tracking with me. Jesus is the gate of recess. Recess to rich community, to food and drink and celebration and joy. So when Jesus calls out his sheep by name, he leads them out of the pen to the good stuff. Now, I've heard this described as a metaphor for heaven. Some people think it's a metaphor for the church. I don't think so. Please hear me. I don't think so. This is just an opinion here. I think the gate metaphor is better understood as a release or recess, maybe even from enslavement or bondage. Jesus leads them out. Remember where he takes them, to pasture. It's better to be in the pasture than be in the pen, right? We, we would understand that. What's the pasture? Lots of metaphors here, but it's probably the kingdom, the kingdom of God, which includes the idea of freedom, redemption, relationship. The pasture is where you want to be. And Jesus is the gateway to that kind of reality. Being inside the pen may include a sense of being enslaved, probably enslaved to the law. Contextually, that's probably part of the metaphor given the audience for this. Jesus is the good shepherd who leads the sheep out. He's also the gate or the door by which those who are enslaved are able to recess. Here's why we think of him as an access point as well. So recess and access. Uh, by the way, I, I've not stated it yet, uh, but if it's not obvious to you, this text is definitely about salvation. This is a parable about a saving shepherd, the only saving shepherd that is Jesus. And those who hear his voice and respond to him, they're able to go out and back in. They go in and they go out. They go in and out freely, not back into enslavement. I don't think that's the way to look at it. He's trying to help us see that there's something good about this freedom that happens on the outside of the pen. It's a, it's a liberty we all crave, the ability and confidence to come out of the pen and live in the grace of God, to live freely and lightly under the grace of God. Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's a lightness. Next week, again, I'll talk a little bit more about what it costs Jesus to grant us this access, this ability to go uh, in and out. But a couple more comments on Jesus being access. And for this, I'd like to go back to the gatekeeper reference from earlier. If the person lying in that opening is a junior shepherd, um, Maybe the metaphor includes the idea that there are multiple shepherds around, there's multiple influencers around, not just Jesus, but they're only good shepherds if they lead their sheep to pastures of salvation. Shepherds who coax their sheep into following someone or something other than Jesus may as well be thieves climbing over the wall. They're false 
shepherds. That's what Jesus calls thieves and robbers. Or I'll just put it to you like this. Some shepherds fleece their sheep. Their sheep. They may promise life, but they actually usher their followers into a kind of death. If you were here on Easter Sunday mornings about a month ago, we witnessed the baptisms of 40 people right over here. And most of them said in their testimonies, I'm choosing to move from death to life. And they were speaking, of course, metaphorically, consistent with what we're talking about here. Their faith declaration was, in Jesus, there's a kind of life. In anything or anyone else, there's a kind of death. That's what they were saying. So in John chapter 10, we see Jesus as the access point to life. And other shepherds, junior shepherds, who feed sheep and care for sheep and tend sheep. I mean, good shepherds do all of that. And Jesus is the one who ultimately does this. He's the gate of access. He's the one um, that's also the gate of recess. He's the one that ushers us in and ushers us out. Another way to think of Jesus as the gate uh, of blessing. That's the third idea here. Now, to support this one, I'm thinking about the part where Jesus says, thieves come to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they that you would have life, life to the full, or other translations say uh, abundant life, abundance. Uh, Again, if you spend any time studying ancient Middle Eastern life, um, I read some comments this week about how difficult it would be for a thief to actually climb over the wall and climb back out with a sheep. Very difficult to do. Um, Certainly because the pen is guarded, and the sheep are not going to cooperate either. The sheep are not going to respond. They're just going to sit there. They're not going to move unless... That was my sheep impersonation. That's not in my notes. That's a freebie. Um, The thief is not going to try to steal an animal and care for it. The thief just wants the wool and the meat. Sheep are valuable animals. So what would a thief do? Climb over, climb down, find a sheep, grab it, slit its throat, let it bleed out, maybe, you know, shear the wool, and then gut the animal and take the valuable parts, toss that over and climb back out. This is what Jesus is asking his audience to picture. They they know this is how it works. But what does our good shepherd do instead? A good shepherd brings life, life to the full. And by the way, in this text, there's a kind of an over-the-top vibe in the original language. It, It implies excess, blessing beyond what anybody would naturally expect, extraordinary blessing, more than necessary. And that Jesus talks this way here should not be surprising considering other examples that we see from Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Several times Jesus does things where there's physical examples of abundance. All of this represents the lavish grace of the Father, unmerited, unnecessary benefits. Show you a couple examples of this. I'll just tell you about them. Uh, in, in this very same gospel in John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding and the wine runs out. And so Jesus kind of saddles up to uh, this area and says to the host, You know, you got a problem? Would you like me to take care of this for you? Uh, would you like me to? And so Jesus performs a miracle. He turns a bunch of water into wine. And the text is unusually specific here. He produces 180 gallons of wine. It's a clear uh, effort being made here to demonstrate this lavish 
grace. It's tons. It is excess. Then there's the occasion of Jesus feeding 5,000 people, or in some translations, 5,000 men, which leads others to to speculate that maybe there's as many as 15,000 men, women, children in this massive crowd. And Jesus feeds all of them with what he can glean from a a little kid's lunch kit. And when the whole experience is over, you know the story, there's leftovers. Leftovers. Like, what's the point of, I think the point of the leftovers is just, again, to show this unmerited grace. And then there's the story that a lot of you know of of Jesus talking to some guys who were fishing. They're in a boat, he's on the shore, but they're close enough to talk, and Jesus kind of yells out to them, the, the classic fishing question, how are they biting? And the guys in the boat say, they're not. We got skunked. And so Jesus says, maybe try, you know, the other side of the boat. And they say, okay. And so they do it. And the haul, the catch is so massive, their nets begin to break and it nearly capsizes the boat. <laughs> What's the story with all of this? These are all stories of abundance lavish grace, over-the-top blessing. There's a place in Jeremiah. I don't have this for you on screen, but there's a place in Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, if you want to look this up, where the prophet says, I will bring health and healing. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. Great vision. Jesus is the gateway, the door to this kind of blessing. Now, we got to be intellectually honest about something here. Jesus is not necessarily the gateway to material blessing. You know, like, there's not a promise here of perfect health and wealth and toys and sex and food and drink. And you know this. We live in a fallen world. Evil exists. Suffering is real. Struggles persist. This is how one teacher puts it. The life of abundance The life that is truly life, that is ours in Jesus, isn't concerned with quantity, but quality. Not stuff, but relationship. Not duration, but intimacy. So don't look for abundance in what Jesus gives you materially. Look for for it in who Jesus is. A life of abundance is a life with Jesus. A life of abundance is life with Jesus. I can't explain why some people live in plenty and others live in such deep want, but I can tell you that neither is an indication of where you stand in relationship to your heavenly father. He wants to be your gate. And one last consideration. If Jesus is the gate of recess and access, if he's the gateway to divine blessing, he's also the gate who protects And this is something else that gates do. They protect. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about this next week in in verse 14 where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know me. They know my voice. There's a protective angle here to think about. But until then, anyone who enters the kingdom of Jesus by way of the gate, that is Jesus, what's promised is security in Jesus forever which I think is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that I am convinced, Paul says, that nothing, absolutely nothing, height, depth, life, death, not the present, not the future, nothing in all creation can separate you, can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus the Lord.
Jesus is the gate of forever protection. And nothing can separate us from that. That's the kind of gate he is. Okay, I'm pretty much done, but I think we should respond to this. And so here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Uh, I'm going to ask you to think about whether or not Jesus is calling your name today. Maybe that's part of your story. You sense that he's been calling your name since you were quite young. Maybe you committed your life to Christ years ago, but it could be that there's some in the room this morning and maybe today you're finally realizing that all along Jesus has been calling your name and maybe you've never responded to his call on your life and responded to his invitation to his kind of life. Well, maybe today is the day you might want to say yes finally to Jesus and pray a prayer of commitment, of repentance. Make him your savior, make him Lord today. Maybe you can respond, make him forgiver and leader. Maybe you sense you're in bondage, you're enslaved to something, and today might be the day you just, you know, come to the altar, come to the end of yourself, and you say, I, I'm, I'm gonna ask for the help of my good shepherd, this gate, to kind of leave the bondage that I'm in. Maybe you've responded to Jesus years ago, but you recognize that you're, kind of closing your ears to his voice and you're not really following, you're not really listening. I'm just going to ask you to think about your response to this idea that Jesus is a gate for you. And maybe the way I would ask you to, to think about doing this is to, to try to do something physical to kind of mark this. Um, I'm not kidding when I say if you would like to, if you would like to come up here onto the platform when we're done here, you're welcome to do that and, and come here and kneel here or sit here or put your hands on the gate and, and pray a prayer or journal or write or something like that. Come to the stairs, come to the front, um, go to one of the other doorways in the building. There's lots of doors in this building. Find one and maybe in a doorway, uh, in a gate kind of place, kind of make your prayer. You might want to do that at your car door, go home to your house. Uh, I've been thinking about the fact that we've got a couple of gates uh, on the outside of our house along our fence. Well, maybe that's a place you want to go and just in the beauty of, of what it is outside today, just kind of stand there and, and reflect on this and pray into this. So what I'm going to do here is just close uh, the service by praying. I'll invite you to stand if you're able to do that with me. And then when we're done, uh, you feel the freedom to come up here if you wish or make your way out. But thank you for being here this morning and for leaning into this text. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Um, we, we start almost every prayer with thanksgiving, and I think that's appropriate because you have extended us this incredible offer, the best offer we could ever have on this earth, which is to do life under the presence of, of you, our good shepherd, our savior, our leader, our Lord. Thank you for making a way. Thank you for calling us by name, for knowing us and loving us. This is powerful truth that is almost impossible to comprehend. But today we acknowledge you, we acknowledge our need of you. And for any that have never taken a step like this, God, would you kind of create that restlessness, continue to stir and prompt by your spirit that we might be reconciled to you and enjoy fellowship with you. Dip, reach, 
a deep, rich fellowship like that of a sheep and a shepherd. Plant that image, that vision in our hearts that we might respond to it. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to be here and to witness uh, each other's worship. Thank you, God, for the goodness of this place and these people. In your name we pray, amen. God bless you all. Have a great day.